my name is Chris Papadopoulos and you are listening to episode 4 of the Autism Podcast which is produced by the London Autism Group Charity. In this episode I speak with David Grant who is the husband of Carrie Grant who featured in episode 2. Like Carrie, David Grant is a very well-known singer, television presenter and vocal coach. In this episode we talk about a range of things including his own journey as a father of children with additional needs, including autism and ADHD, the father's role more broadly, and why this can make them more vulnerable to poor mental health, and also the stigma of mental health more broadly, and what we can do about that. David is incredibly honest and forthcoming about his experiences and the struggles he's had during his journey of fatherhood. His accounts and takes on things, I think, show David to be a very intelligent and thoughtful person and I would like to thank him for his honesty and views that I think have incredible merit. I should also, for the sake of honesty and transparency, also credit how patient he was with some of my dog's interruptions. If you listen closely, you'll be able to hear her scuttle around and try to find some way of participating from time to time. Before I play the interview, I also need to say that it is important that if you are considering taking up any advice that you may hear on any of these interviews, that you should always do your fact-checking first. Although some of our guests may be sure that certain things work in certain ways, this may not always necessarily be the case, not to mention the fact that things, of course, change over time. So please always do your own fact-checking. I'd also like to remind you that we welcome any donation, no matter how small, to support the London Autism Group charity. We have some big ideas about how to generate positive social change and how to positively support the autism community, but we cannot do this without funds. So if you're listening and enjoy this podcast, please do consider going to our London Autism Group charity Facebook page, which you can find by just searching for it and hitting the blue donate button. Setting up a fundraising event is also extremely easy via the Facebook charity page. And remember that we are also a registered charity on Amazon Smiles and also Give As You Live. Okay, with that said, I now bring you David Grant. Okay, so um, I have here David Grant. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Oh, it was lovely to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Okay, so I'd just like to begin by asking a little bit more about your uh, personal experience. I say more because Carrie talked it through a little bit and when she did her uh, podcast a couple episodes ago for which I'm very grateful for and which was fantastic. Carrie sort of described a little bit about uh, the journey but I'd be keen to hear it from your perspective you know your, yeah. your journey. Our journey as autism parents I think it's a different journey for each person so I think it's uh, I'm pleased that you ask me because hearing Carrie's experiences you know she will give you the kind of authentic warts and all, but it's her authentic warts and all. And like anybody listening who is an autism parent, if you, who has a partner, if you have a partner, you know that actually you arrive at the same destinations often at different speeds. That can result not just in you sort of not necessarily always being on the same page, but are sometimes wondering where you are at all. I'll give you, for instance, I mean, the way that the way that I grew up, I grew up very similar to Carrie. Um, we both had quite strict upbringings, you know. Yeah, her parenting was pretty strict. In fact, I was shocked when I first met her and I used to say things like, oh, I wasn't allowed to do this or, you know, oh, my mum would say this. And she said, my said the same. And I was like, 
wow, I didn't know English people went through that. I thought it was just like immigrant families that went through that whole strictness, but she was really strict. So I think we both had an impression, an experiential interpretation of what parenting was. That, you know, you laid down pretty hard lines. In fact, I sometimes say that I knew three hard and fast facts about parenting and they were all wrong. And one of them was that you laid down hard and fast lines and you did not budge and you were immovable. And that immovability meant that your child would ultimately fall into line. You know, however long it took, however many clashes there were. Ultimately, they'd fall into line because that had been my observation. When I became an autism parent, I discovered that that didn't work. And I was all at sea because it was almost as though I found myself like a ship in a storm, tethered to a rock that was sinking, but unwilling to untether myself because it's the only rock I knew. Whereas Carrie had recognised before I did this is sinking and we need to move on. So there were moments when we weren't on the same page. Um, And I think that that's because I was much less willing to let go of what I thought I knew in order to embrace the reality of my circumstances. And one of the things that I have found a a relief because, you know, I think, God, I'm really thick and what what was wrong with me is that actually I'm not alone. There are a lot of autism parents who've gone, well, you, you know, surely... Surely the stuff that works and that's worked for generations must work. Surely, you know, if you, if you just hold a line, even if you don't hold it too strict, if you hold it lovingly, just hold a line, it's going to work. Surely, if you treat all your children the same, if you have more than one, then you'll end up with the same results. And of course, that's, that's not true. It's, it's a very interesting thing to me that we are so massively influenced by our upbringing. I mean, what is that all about? Why is it so difficult to, to, to sort of perhaps critically reflect and question whether what we were exposed to or the way that things worked for us may not be exact, you know, perfect models for our own circumstances? And that applies just generally to life throughout, doesn't it? You know, we, we find it hard to, to break away from what, we're, from what we're used to. I think that there are a couple of reasons for that, Chris. Uh, I think that's, a, that's a, a really interesting observation. It's a really challenging observation because what it touches on is it touches on the personal and it touches on sort of the, the familial and it touches on the cultural and it touches on identity. Part of the reason it's hard to accept that it doesn't work is because it then raises questions within your own mind. I, well, certainly, just speaking for myself, did it actually work for me? Or did I simply toe the line because there was an expectation? And I was maybe neurotypical enough to say, look, this is the expectation. I only have to meet this expectation for a certain number of years and then I'm, I'm free to do what I want to do. And I'd never actually even considered that it could be that maybe the things that I just accepted as right were wrong and not just wrong for my kids. Perhaps some of them were always wrong. Perhaps some of this inherited notion of, of what's the right way to raise a child. You know, you go back a couple of generations and people, you know, that, that thing that children should be seen and not heard was, it was just taken as a given. That's absolutely right. And if your child interrupts a conversation to ask a question or to make a point, you know, there used to be a phrase when I was a kid, and it was just like three words that would silence any 
West Indian child when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, you'd be sitting there listening to, like, the grown-ups talking and go, um, excuse me? And somebody would look at you and say, shh, big people talking. <laughs> just, and that was it. It was like... That was the end of it. You are not a big person. In fact, you're lucky to even be in the same room when big people are talking. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. just shut up. Right, right, right. Um, so, so, you know, if you take that in this broader sense, there's a necessity to question whether that was ever right, whether some of those things were ever right. So then you're, you're, you're questioning a whole sort of maybe generations of cultural heritage, which is quite hard and quite challenging. The other thing is you're questioning yourself personally because you're saying, well, if this isn't right, if what I know isn't right, then what do I need to know? I'm going to have to start from zero, you know. And and often, I don't, I, I don't know about anybody listening to this, but often you feel like I know where I want to go, but you can't get there from here. But I'm here now. Mm. So <laughs> you, know, you know where you want to be. I know where I want to be. And it's just like, wherever I want to be, you can't get there from here. So I need to somehow go back or stop and change course. But how and what course? That, that can be very sort of distressing, can't it? I mean, that isn't just a matter of, you know, a problem. That, that can be, a, you know, a real source of distress and potentially anxiety and, and even perhaps depression, right? If you're banking on what you, you know and what... And, you know, you have this confidence going into parenting that you, you've got it figured out, but then you, you feel sort of lost and uncertain. That's a very difficult place to be, right? Well, it is a difficult place to be, Chris, because, because what it basically is saying, certainly, and, and this is something, again, that I, I have had conversations with so many autism parents, or, or not even autism, SEN parents, generally, moving beyond just autism that constant sense that you're always just a step away from failing or you are failing because it gets to a point actually where it's difficult to even remember what constitutes success because there is just this sense that I've had a good day today therefore I feel better maybe maybe we're going somewhere here maybe we're getting somewhere you know we could be on a journey towards better and then you get terrible days immediately after that and it's like I'm failing again mm. and none of this is working there's something that that, that that does keep me going in all of this uh, well there are a few things but one of the things that really keeps me going in all of this Chris is that you know when it's summer certainly if it's summer in in England or in the northern hemisphere when it's summer some days it rains mm. and some days are windy and some days feel cold and some days don't feel like summer but that doesn't mean the season's changed. And sometimes things are getting better. They are moving on. They are progressing. You are moving towards, if not a resolution, you're moving towards a better understanding and a more consistent, more therapeutic, helpful parenting. But you're still going to have days where it just feels like a deluge, a deluge of bad news, a deluge of everything's just upside down. And I am so far from being able to cope that I feel like a complete failure. I think that's the other thing, you know, we talk about heritage. I think something, whatever your background, and if you've grown up with even moderately functioning parenting, you grow up with a belief that you only discover much later is, a, is an erroneous one that grown-ups can cope. That one of the things about being grown-up is that you have the answers. 
that you know the solutions and even if you don't know them you can find them and uh, I think that, that that's the thing with all grown-ups maybe particularly even men maybe particularly no I think with all grown-ups but maybe more so men I think that certainly my experience is that men are often more solution orientated yes. and less journey orientated right. it's like you know let's cut to the chase let's find the answer and let's move on but when there isn't an answer as such there is only the journey. Mm. I, I still find myself on some days thinking, what's the solution? And then reminding myself that there isn't a solution. This isn't, this isn't a problem. This isn't an equation. This is a life. Right. There's only a journey. It, well, and what do you think it is about fathers fathers trying to uh, find, you know, practical solutions? You know, solutions, you know, like you said, like some sort of equation. We can fix this. We can, you know, let's just solve this. You know, what, what is it about fathers need to do that? I've got some thoughts about that myself, but I wonder whether you've thought about that or what is it about fathers? I have actually. Yeah. And, and, and I have because I thought about it in the context of, of sort of wanting to be a better, a better dad. And I want to start out by saying how much I learn from SEN dads because good SEN dads are amazing as are good SEN mums. I've also become aware that for many men, this whole area is problematic. Part of the, the reason why it's problematic, I mean, obviously, the, the, you know, there are myriad reasons. But I think one of the reasons is that if you are, if you are a couple in this, you've got to be part of a team. And if you are a couple in this, unless you are the primary carer, you have got to accept, I think, that actually you're part of the support team. Yeah. And that's a hard thing. You know, sometimes I've known, I've, I've sat down with, you know, we, we have a, a group that meets at our place. And sometimes you, you see a lot of mums there and not so many dads. I've, I've, I've questioned it a number of times and sometimes questioned the dads who come when they have come. But there are dads who come all the time. They're always going to be there. But there are others who I think find the idea of discussing a situation rather than discussing it in the context of at the end of the discussion we'll know where we're going and how things are going to be better rather than we're going to discuss it and we're going to share our experiences in a way that will encourage and enable us to keep going because we'll recognize that a we're not alone b people have walked this walk some people are ahead of us in it so they've been this part of the journey and they can help to tell us what to expect on this journey they can't necessarily tell us how to solve it because they didn't necessarily know how to solve it but they did know how to navigate it you know for a bloke it's like navigate it i don't learn how to navigate it you know if it's a if it's a river let's build a bridge well, we can't build a bridge. <laughs> what we have to do is we have to sit on this side of the river. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Funny, but also concerning. <laughs> yeah, um, but I do think that, like, for instance, Carrie and I, I think in a way, look, I'm, I'm very lucky because I grew up with two women. I grew up with my mother and my grandmother. So there's a fluidity in our parenting that's been there from the very beginning. We don't have set roles. I think that if I'd have had a set role and my set role would have been provider and whatever and whatever, if it was a traditional set role, I think I would have found this journey much, much harder. And part of the reason why I would have found it harder, Chris, is because I think that somewhere in the back of my mind, I would have thought it was my job to find a solution. And I honestly think that that's why there is one of the reasons there's such a high attrition rate 
in the marriages of couples with SEN kids. I think one of the reasons for the high attrition rate is that people go into it um, with roles. I think, okay, my role in this is A, Y, Z, my role in A, B, C, X, Y, Z. Actually, my role in it is to stand shoulder to shoulder with my partner in it and to face whatever situation we encounter today rather than predetermine how I'm supposed to act and what goals I'm supposed to achieve. And, you know, what you can then do is you can legitimise sort of not engaging because, well, I've tried and it doesn't work. She doesn't want to talk to me. And the other thing is, I'm speaking now specifically about autism kids, that we had a situation where one of our children decided that, that they didn't like me and like Carrie and quite liked the idea of dividing us. So actually we had to work really, really hard to be on the same page. Otherwise you end up with that feeling like, here I am, I'm over on the left side and my partner and the children are over on the right side and I just turn up and nobody, nobody makes you feel that. But I think it's something that circumstances can make you feel as though somehow you're detached, you're semi-detached. And I think as a dad, you need to be attached. I think particularly if your kids have needs, I think parenting has to become much more self-sacrificial than if you have neurotypical children. I know that there was a while in my parenting where I was disappointed by the fact that my needs weren't being met. You know, so what about my needs? It wasn't like it's when we got married and we didn't have any kids. It's like, that's because we didn't have any kids. <laughs> you know, and I think that actually, for some reason, and I won't say it's instinct and I won't say it's nurturing, I won't say it's any of that because I don't know that to be the case. I don't know the reason, but for some reason, there appears to be a much more pragmatic attitude, much more easily, much more readily among mothers of kids with special needs who say you know what this this may not be what I thought we had signed up for but this is what it is and we're going to make the best of what it is do you know what I mean we are we are here now we are in this place and wherever this place is this is where we're at and we're going to make this place a garden whereas I I for ages was just going I don't care if it's a garden I don't want to be in this place can we move somewhere else? I'm really happy to get engaged in this whole process when we're somewhere else. And the fact of the matter is that actually, it took me a little while to work out that we weren't gonna be anywhere else. That this is where we were and we had to make a garden where we were. Fascinating. Going back to what you were saying about the, men, the, the father's role. I, I mean, I've thought about this quite a bit and, and you know, you, you, sort of, you touched upon this as well, but fathers, one reason why they're vulnerable to poor mental health, and I think they are very vulnerable fathers to poor mental health, which is a real problem that, that impacts upon communication and then that has that negative effect on attrition in marriages, etc. So mental health is fundamental. I think if you've got, if you feel well and, you've, and you have good mental health, you, you can, you're more resilient and you can cope with things better, you can communicate better, and the two go hand in hand. But I think one of the reasons why fathers have poor mental health is because, as you said, they sometimes can see themselves as a secondary in the parenting, you know? And that, I think that's, that's problematic for a number of reasons. You know, fathers that see themselves as secondary, you know, let the mum get on with it. I'm going to go to work, you know, dads generally are more likely to be in full-time employment or any type of employment than, than mums, typically. 
So I'm going to go to work, let mum take care of this. I'm not going to think about it. In a way, work can be therapeutic like that. You know, you can just mm -hmm. sort of escape and not worry Absolutely. about about those challenges Harry and I both call work respite care so there you go that, yeah, that reflects absolutely. what we're saying yeah but when the father comes home you know it's a problematic situation potentially because you, you might sort of blame the mum for not doing more or doing better you've come back you've come back to a difficult situation and perhaps you know you you know you might you might blame your spouse about what the situation seems to be you know you're working hard you come back and and you've got this situation and I think that that blaming culture perhaps is is problematic but also the fact that you're you're seeing yourself as secondary you're the backup you're the person that's going to come up with some of the solutions and when those solutions aren't working and you're you're sort of don't you don't know what to do you're at a loss you know then the whole thing just crumbles and you've got poor mental health you're not communicating you might blame as well you know you, you know i would be doing this differently yeah. you know and uh, that causes that causes problems and as you said i think i think parents need to sort of stand side by side in the journey as opposed to the father seeing themselves as propping the the situation up and, and either as having... propping it up or, or or in worst case scenario standing outside of it and not really even having a place in it you know, I, I, I totally agree with that, Chris. I think that one of the things about the, the, the whole mental health issue is role strain. You know, you, you can walk through that door. First, let's clarify this because there may be some people listening, you know, so, so why was it you expect a mother to be at home? We don't. It's just that statistically, yes. you know, in, in something like over 90% of cases, if one parent of a child, an SEN child gives up work, it's the woman. And it's not always the woman for any, any reasons of kind of gender bias. It's often because of the pay differentials between men and women that you know if, if i'm earning 20 quid a day and you're earning 15 quid a day and one of us has to give up it's got to be the person earning 15 quid a day and usually because of the gender pay gap it's women who are earning less not always but usually so when you when you as uh, as the man the father the kids come in at the end of the day yeah it's easy to go i'm here now the cavalry's arrived <laughs> and you, your partner may just be screaming at you because she's been wanting to scream all day. You're the only person she can safely scream at. Right. And it's just like role strain is one of the things that people find most stressful. Most of us know in a working context what we are. Mm. And we know where we fit. And then if you are in a, a non-neurotypical home that isn't always the case I and mean, you don't know where you are you may you may open the door and you know one two nights of the month walk into paradise you may open the door and the other nights of the month walk into a war zone you never know and you've immediately got to change hats from that person you've been all day whoever that is to whatever and whoever you need to be when you walk through the door and that that's the massively demanding that can be massively demanding so here you are you've gone to work thinking you know i'm going to use work as respite but actually probably there's an undercurrent of stress anxiety you know if you're worried about what what you're going to face when you come home that's going to have some sort of impact upon how you're feeling just hour to hour in your day so then you go home and then you know it could be the case that you know things are offloaded to you okay you're home dad's home I need a rest. Uh, you're up, yeah. and so you, you're Short up again. Time. Yeah. So you've been. So so you you know you you sort of wake up with that anxiety. If if you're struggling, particularly with poor mental health, you might wake up with 
that anxiety about your day. You have that that day, which can be demanding, whatever it is you do, that undercurrent of stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then you come home and then you're, you're thrown, thrown into a situation that might be very stressful and, and anxious for, for various reasons. Yeah. So it's a, it's a sort of constant, it's a constant thing, right? It's a constant mm-hmm. strain. And I think that's why fathers are particularly vulnerable. Well, one of the many reasons, yeah. I mean, there's an old saying, home is where you hang your hat, where people used to wear hats. I always think if you're an SEN dad, often home is where you hang your head. And you just go, oh, what do here? Yeah, it's like... But no, I know that certainly for us, for Carrie and I, when one of us walks through the door, we both try very quickly to assess the situation and jump in. Right. You know, and, and be a team rather than, you know, I've walked in the door and suddenly there are five children to look after. Or Carrie's walked in the door and all the stress and anxiety that I've been bottling up, I'm going to direct at her because she's a grown up and she can take it. Um, What worked for us was finding a methodology of parenting, was finding something that, you know, Carrie, Carrie jumped on it way before I did. I was still clinging to the rocks of the sinking ship, Um, you know, but. She jumped on this thing called MBR, said, you know, let's have a look at it. It's nonviolent resistance, it's called. And we did. She at first, and that was probably the most stressful period where Carrie was definitely on board with something, and I wasn't. And part of the reason I wasn't on board with it is because I didn't like it. I didn't like the idea that I was going to change my parenting according to the child. No, no, no. They, they were going to change their behavior according to me. You know, I didn't really understand that autism doesn't work like that. Mm. I wouldn't have it. <laughs> but you know what? I've got four children and four different parenting styles. Because actually, they're four very different children. And they all have needs. But they have different needs. And so to be a good dad doesn't mean being exactly the same with every person, yeah? No more than a good meal means feeding everybody whatever their tastes exactly the same beautifully cooked dish. Because it's not going to be right for some people, you know? You're going to go, what's wrong? That, that's my favorite chicken dish. You go, well, yeah, I'm a vegan. Yeah, but I spent hours on that chicken. Come on, man, you know? It's the equivalent of that, actually. Right. There are some kids that certain things are right for and others that, that certain things aren't right. And the thing that I found hardest, actually, with regard to the, the coming in at the end of the day, and obviously it doesn't necessarily work, work as, as hard and fast as that. There isn't that delineation with us because we both work and we both earn equally and we both share parenting equally. But the thing that I was not good at that Carrie was better at was presence was actually when I walk through that door, I'm not in a studio anymore. When I walk through that door, I'm, I'm not coaching. I'm not presenting TV anymore. I'm not in a studio producing anymore. I'm parenting. When I walk through that door, I'm dad and I'm husband. And I've got to be present, not just in the room on my phone looking at Twitter or in the room on my laptop sending emails but in the room listening and engaging and being part of my children's life and my wife's life. And I found that hard because actually 
you know, when you're in the room and being in the room is demanding and you've already come from something that's demanding, it's really hard not to engage in something that keeps you in the room but keeps your head somewhere else. And being present is much more tiring. But it means that, you know, when the kids ask a question, it's not on the third time that you actually hear it and start answering because you're there. That, that can be very frustrating for the child as well if you if you if you sense if they sense that you're not there also your partner if if he or she senses that you're not there and you need them to be yeah and then that has extra demand doesn't it so it's, it's just better to be there really isn't it yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah and i also think you know that's a generational change maybe a couple of generations ago what constituted good fathering was you know just putting food on the table keeping the roof over the, your, your heads and paying the bills and, you know, occasionally going out to watch your kids play football or mm. whatever, you know. But I don't know, I think when you're an SEN dad, it's different. So what would, you, what would you recommend to those dads that are out there right now listening who, you know, who are just sort of entering this world of, of SEN and, and or autism and, you know, they're struggling, they're, you know, they're sort of feeling quite anxious and depressed and lonely? And Well, there are three things I'd say. The first is... Find other people who are in the same position. Finding other people in the same, same position, uh, it's great on a number of levels, as far as I'm concerned. One level is that it makes you recognize and realize you're not alone. Another level is that it makes you realize that the things that you think are failing, you only think are failing because you have in your head that somebody else is doing this so brilliantly and nobody else is going through the same questions and not finding answers and nobody else is going through the same situations and not finding resolution. And actually when you meet other people, when you encounter other people, whether it's in person or online, and you realize everybody's walking the same walk, we're all asking the same questions, it's a huge relief. Because, you know, all good and bad is comparative. And if you think you're bad at something, it's because you have an erroneous idea of what good is. Mm. Certainly, it's all relative. Certainly when it comes to SEN parenting. And the third thing I would say is you are enough. You know, I, I can't parent like you, Chris. I've heard you're a brilliant dad. But if I'm going to be a brilliant dad, I've got to be my version of a brilliant dad. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I won't give a, a sort of like an A, B and C. I would say your children, whoever they are, they may have exactly identical conditions to my children, but their presentation and their personalities and the circumstances that you're in are going to be slightly different. So there's no point in me saying this is what you do. But there is a point in me saying if this is how you feel, I felt it. And if you're an SEN dad, you'll know what I'm talking about because you felt it. But know this we can get through. There are some SCN dads, a load of them who are like, they're super parents, they're super dads and they just don't know it. They're spending more time thinking about their children and thinking about how to work through, how to find the best for them, how to, how to ensure the best for them. They're spending more time trying to work out how to be what their kids need than any neurotypical dad actually has to. And still feeling like they're failing and not realizing actually they're super parents. I agree. I absolutely agree. We're all. It's crucial, I think, that we recognise that we're all in our own unique reality and world, isn't it? We shouldn't necessarily think that our our circumstances, the life that we're leading, is directly comparable with anyone else's. And and and, and I think sometimes we're. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know. I wonder whether it is again a male thing. But I often I'm vulnerable to this personally, where I I compare with other 
other families, other people. Oh, and I, that absolutely destroys my well-being oh, when I do that. Yeah, but I, I also think in a way, in a way, that's part of, you know, you talked about, about cultural pressure. And I think that's not just like a monoculture, like, you know, either you, you Greek culture, Caribbean culture, African culture, Jewish culture, whatever. I think that we have a neurotypical culture that says this is, this is good behavior. Here, this is how it's supposed to be. I'm going to draw you a graph, and on that graph, at one end is going to be good cho- children's behavior, and at the other end is, is bad children's behavior. And if you are on the wrong side of the middle, you are failing. But we often say it to one another how we used to have this dream of sitting in a restaurant with our children and people would look at us and look at our kids and go, wow, look at that family. Those children are so polite and well behaved. And it would, we would bask in the reflected glory of how incredibly, you know, how inc- incredibly well behaved our children were. Now, you know what? If they're all sitting around the table, not shouting, not under the table. But just sitting around the table. If then, if the, if food isn't everywhere, if if one of them hasn't stormed off, if there's not a row going on, that's a great day out. Mm. <laughs> other other families may look and go, "Wow, what a mess!" But you know what? For us, we've stopped comparing ourselves yeah. with what we don't have, and we've stopped measuring ourselves by what we're not. If you don't mind, I'm going to read out your tweet because I think this relates to what you're talking about. Uh, because I saw this tweet that you put up, which I just thought was wonderful. I had to immediately retweet it. Uh, which was, you, so this is what it says. Not one drop of our self-worth should depend on other people's acceptance of us. Which I just think is just such wise words. And I think perhaps, unfortunately... It, the reality is is true in in most cases in that so much of our self-worth how we value our, how we judge ourselves our self-efficacy our our self-value is derived by whether we think other people do accept us do value us do think that we're we're doing good that we, we are doing right from wrong etc etc and as you as you said in your tweet i think that is very problematic because then you do have that situation where you know, you'll be happy if you're in a restaurant and your family's doing all the right things and you see other people respond positively to that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that that's probably been one of the, the hardest lessons for me, Chris, that I didn't realise how much the approval of others influenced my own se- sense of self mm. until... I felt the disapproval of others. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's why a lot of people, I mean, I was with somebody the other day and I became aware of the fact that their family don't know that their daughter's diagnosed on the autism spectrum because the social stigma within their community of accepting that and not just accepting it, but, but proclaiming it would is just too much for them. They're into the, so they suspect it, but they oh no, they know it. Oh, they know it. They know it, and they talk with other autism parents about that. They're quite open about it, except with their own family. Their oh, own right. family don't know. Wow, you think sad. actually, it shows so how sad, uh, it? it's incredibly sad, but it shows how much their sense of self is wrapped up in other people's perception of them, and I think. I think we are encouraged in this world to live our lives through other people's eyes. 
rather than with our own set sense of ourselves and who we are and our own set of values and our own acknowledgement of our own intrinsic value you know i i remember i remember years and years ago this is this may seem like a trite or a false equivalency but 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 it's something that started me on the road to this way of thinking i did a gig and i had a cold and it was my first ever tour and i sang to like three four thousand people i was on stage for an hour and a half and i came off and the audience went mad they were loving it and i said to my sort of tour manager i was rubbish i was terrible and he said no the audience absolutely loved it and the next day i said to my manager i just didn't feel very good about last night and he said no it wasn't very good and i said i got all defensive i said but the audience loved it and he said, yes, but we all need to have our own understanding of good and bad. We need to have our own understanding of right and wrong. We need to have our own values. And that was short of your best. And do you know that? It was good. They thought it was good. But you know it was short of your best. And it makes me think, okay, you know what? What is the best for my children? Sometimes the best is to get up in that restaurant and run around because sometimes they need a break. Sometimes I need to get up with them, take them outside. Let's walk up the street. Let's come back. You know, and, and if I do, it's nothing to do with anybody else. And I know what it's like. You know, we sat in a restaurant on Mother's Day and there were some people sitting beside us who were giving some horrid looks to one of our, our children just kept going up and sitting by the window. It's by the Thames and looking out at the river and looking at Tower Bridge. Sat on the mat by the French doors staring out while we were having dinner. No problem. And uh, they kept looking at us and looking at her and looking at us. And in the end I said, you know what? She loves the view. And they went, yes, it is a nice view, isn't it? Like, end of conversation. In other words, I don't care what you think. You know, you are entitled to think what you want. But I can't let that in any way affect me. Otherwise, I'll be then transferring that to the children and saying, please act like this. Please don't blurt. Please be quiet. Please be something you can't be. Please don't have ADHD. Please don't be autistic. Rather than, you know what? You're here. You're you. I want to celebrate you. And if that makes other people feel slightly uncomfortable, sometimes I have to say, you know, they say, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. My child's got autism. My child is, my child doesn't have autism. My child is autistic. There's nothing wrong. You know, and, and as far as I'm concerned, there isn't anything wrong. Spot on. Yeah. These are, these are my kids and I love them and I can't, I can't imagine them any other way. They are as they are. And my life has been enriched. My parenting has been enriched. My sense of self has been enriched. I know things that I would never know. I do things that I would never do. I think I have values that I would never have. And there's nothing like 
I think there's nothing like being in a situation where you become subject to judgment to make, certainly to have made me realise how judgmental I used to be. I would have been that person giving sniffy looks to the family where, you know, one kid's shouting and another is sitting by the window instead of sitting by the table, sitting at the table. I may well have been that person. And if not saying anything, thinking, well, your parenting can't be great, you know. And actually, I think our parenting's pretty good. It's really the thinking that matters more than anything. If you're thinking, it's the beliefs people hold, yeah. I think that if there, if there are people who, like I have people in my family who were saying basically, why, why, why did you have your children diagnosed? Why do you want to give them a label? And my response was, no, it's not a label. It's an explanation. Right. An explanation to them that actually you are perfectly normal, but you're walking around and this is your normal. You know, like my normal is bouncing off the walls and singing. Okay, um, my normal is different to someone else's normal. Uh, someone else's normal may be sitting with a calculator and poring over numbers, but loving it. Someone else's normal may be standing and lecturing people, but not just teaching them information, teaching them who they are via that information, teaching them how to think, how to process, how to analyze, how to question via that information. That might be their normal. And I'd stand there and listen to them in awe at their normal because it's not my normal. Okay, you're on the autism spectrum. That's your normal. Now run with it. Be everything you can be within it. Spot on. I totally agree. I mean, nobody's going to sort of say, you know, why put a label on you being Jamaican? No. No one's going to say that. Or why, why, why put a label on you being male? No one, you know, no one has a problem with that. So it just reflects the stigma, doesn't it? And it does. And I think that that's a really important word, Chris, stigma. Because I think there are a lot of SCN parents who, who feel stigmatised, who feel as though... You know, schools don't make reasonable adjustments. Maybe families and friends don't make reasonable adjustments. Maybe they themselves don't know what the reasonable adjustments required are. I mean, I've been through, I go through periods of my parenting where it feels like every time I find an answer, they change the question. You know, but that's, that's, that's me. But other people's perception of me and other people's perception of our children and our family if that's a negative perception, it's based on their misunderstanding of our normal. It's based on their superimposition of their normal on our normal, on their accepted mores, on our expected behaviour. And I think that without that, there is no stigma. Stigma has to work on the basis of this line is where normal is. And if you're anywhere short of this line, then you are not normal. Absolutely, it's a, it's, a, it's a social product, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. the product no, of what we no construct as what counts as valuable. There's no empirical measure no. of what's right, but there is almost like there's an accepted normal. There's an accepted frame of reference, and if you fall outside that frame of reference, and you know, we sometimes say we want to think outside the box. Actually, I feel like Carrie and I have spent the last few years trying to destroy the box. You know, there's no point in us being in the box. We're never going to fit in the box. If you're an SCN parent, you have to build your own box. Or better still, don't have a box. So this, in a way, has been a real sort of unexpected, positive impact upon your life, hasn't it? This 
this realization that you know we don't need the box you know let's let's and live our own lives in the way that we want to li- live them and uh, again as to your t- tweet um not depend on other people's acceptance of you for your own self-worth that i think probably if i'm right in saying has come from your experience of being a, a parent of an autistic child you are absolutely right chris you're absolutely right i would say that we have two autistic children and they have taught me the meaning of living. They've taught me the meaning of being self-determining with regard to an understanding of my own worth and theirs. And you wouldn't swap that, would you? You wouldn't swap that, that learning. World. Not for the world. You know, I feel as though, and this is going to sound crazy, there are a million and one challenges. There are a million and one unanswered questions. There are nights when I sit up crying, feeling like I am failing these children. I'm never, ever successful. How will I do this? Then you get up the next day and go, come on, we go again. Because the fact of the matter is that actually I wouldn't trade this. I wouldn't swap this. I wouldn't swap them. I wouldn't change them. I want to. The only change I ever want to see in them is them fully growing into everything they are whatever that is and surely that's what any parent would want for any child you know you'd want your child to grow in hopefully you'd want your child to grow into whoever they are and another thing this has taught me is I know this this is going to sound really ignorant and so if you're listening to this please forgive me because I know that everybody's an individual but I, I still really believed that the individual you are was somehow the majority, an amalgam of your influences and, and you know, your, your, your parenting, your society, your community, your encouragement or discouragement and all that. And I've grown to discover that even those, thi- though those things are, are significant, actually you are who you are. And my role as a dad, probably the biggest role that I've had, Chris, is learning who my children are and I'm still learning because you know as soon as I've sussed out who they are they change so again this goes back to what we were saying earlier about you know it can be positive breaking away from from all of those influences that have set us to be who we are we know it can be it can be necessary it can be potentially necessary to think critically and break away from that in order to um in order to embrace the individuality of, of one's life and the uniqueness of it and to value it. Yes, I, I think it is. I think, it's, I think it is essential. The other thing is, you know, we were, talking about, we were talking a little bit earlier about people giving up their work and co-parenting. And one of the reasons why this whole mental health thing, I think, is a big deal is because that for an increasing number of people, Chris, one job isn't enough. For an increasing number of people, if one parent has to let go of full-time work in order to accommodate the needs of their children. That has massive ramifications for the whole family, for the, the survival and the economic survival of the whole family. And if you're the person feeling like I'm working and therefore I have to carry that, even though in reality, every adult carries it, you know, both of you are carrying it. But if you're the one who's feeling like I've got to carry this, I think that that can lead to, to serious mental health issues because you feel like you're failing as a breadwinner you're failing as a parent and if you're too tired to really muck in and really pull your weight and contribute at home you're failing as a partner it can just feel like you are in the middle of a circle and a cycle of failure mm. where you know every Midas in reverse like everything you touch withers and you're trying your very best always knowing that your best isn't nearly good enough 
it's a terrible it's a terrible situation to be in and unfortunately you know poor mental health among men is a real problem and men you know research tells us that men are particularly vulnerable to unfortunately suicidal ideation and suicide because so often there's an undercurrent of poor mental health happening that isn't being communicated you know men feel you know feel often that it's a sense of weakness you know if you communicate that you're feeling depressed and low and you're struggling and you can't cope and you need support I mean that's the worst that's the most self-stigmatizing thing you can acknowledge about yourself often as a man you know that you need support you know and I just think we need to we need to get away from that what do you think the solution is I think what you said earlier about connecting with people in a similar situation is 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 great but I think it's difficult for a couple of reasons one that it's difficult to reach out when you think that reaching out is shameful mm-hmm. you know and secondly men there aren't you know when I when I became a father of an autistic child when that, my son when I realized my son was all autistic that was one thing that I purposely set out to do I'm going to help myself by quietly finding other other dads in the same situation and connect because mm-hmm. my neurotypical friends who are fathers you know they won't get it they, you know I, to be honest with you I tried and that and I just wasn't wasn't getting what I needed yeah. so I thought I'll, I'll, I'd expand my uh, circle of friends and, and see who see what can happen but there wasn't anyone you know I just no. couldn't find anyone you know, and right. it's and a very lonely place, particularly for fathers, isn't it? Yeah. Because fathers don't reach out, and it comes back to this issue of, you know, it's kind of toxic masculinity that <laughs> yes. makes us feel that if we can't cope, if we instinctively we can't just cope, if we don't have that that gene, that coping gene, that we are we have shortcomings as men because we do not have the coping gene, yeah. and every other man does. But the suicidal statistics tell us that no, they don't. Exactly right. They unfortunately, don't. So this is serious stuff, really and serious. and we need we need. I think we need a wide scale intervention, perhaps pushed by the government and big big people with big players, big voices in the community that can push this myth away that men who speak out and communicate are somehow broken and and you know less. less of a man you know this whole sort of cultural it's it's a socio-cultural construction that masculinity is something that is this and should be valued when really we're just making everything up it doesn't need to be like that but each of us is making it up but each of us is making it up thinking that the other person's coping because we don't communicate don't enough that yeah. well, I'm not coping with this yes <laughs> and then someone says Neither am I. You know what? It's all right. I wanted to play cricket for the West Indies and football for England. There came a point where I realized that that was never going to happen. But I was able to look around and realize that apart from maybe one in every 500,000, that wasn't going to happen for other people either. (laughs) So that was okay. Yeah, you're right. right, right. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But when it comes to actually coping with situations in life, we don't have the capacity to look around and go, well, these people aren't coping because it's almost as though the the every time I see yeah like, hashtag perfect life, it's like a slap in the face. Yeah, well, I mean, oh, absolutely. That that is that is concrete evidence of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. You know, that there is some sort of objective notion of of an, a life we should aspire to, which is yes. which is very problematic and causes all sorts of poor mental health. I I just think that you know, this is going to take a lot of time, unfortunately, but we can do it. If our 
policymakers and the people who have influence really in change the way begin to change the way that our culture is constructed it can it can happen you know maybe not for maybe it's too late for us potentially to some degree but for our children it can be better you know our children are totally uh, influenced by the way they are socialized by their parents their families but also schools you know schools have such a critical role to play so i think if we can get this in education that you know mental health is critical i just think mental health needs more of a more of a focus in schooling generally i totally agree i think that we 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 have moved on from mental health being the thing that nobody speaks about but now we need to get it in education as well yeah education so that young people know that in the same way as we take care of our physical health or ought to take care or are aware when we're not we should become aware of what constitutes not taking care of our mental health before it's too late you know before we find ourselves somewhere down a rabbit hole unable to find the exit and that's something that needs to be talked about it needs to be talked about by men more as well i like the fact that more and more men who you would look at in society and think well that person's really successful and must have a perfect life are standing up and being able to say i'm struggling and yet there are still people i think who probably don't believe them but yeah you're just saying that but actually yeah it, it it is a struggle and i think part of the struggle is that in an earlier age when manhood was all about the practical the providing, the kind of stoic suffering of rubbish. But, you know, here I am, I'm working at the coalface. I'm, you know, getting up at six o'clock and I'm walking to, to work so that I can put food on the table for my family. When manhood was as simple as that. And by that, I don't mean easy. Don't confuse simple and easy. No. It was really hard. Yeah. But simple in as much as everybody had a socially accepted construct of what constituted being a good man. I think it was much easier than now when actually it's not just financial or physical, it's not just occupational, it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's mental, it's it's being there, it's being present, it's listening, it's so many demands, but so many demands that we feel quite often are beyond me today. You know, I may, maybe I can't do this today. And if I can't do this today, am I a bad man? Well, no, I just can't do it today. You know, Lewis Hamilton doesn't win every race. No, right. <laughs> I think, again, it comes back to what you said crucially before, David, that we just got to make sure that our self-worth comes from our own personal, you know, inside acceptance of ourselves yes. and not reliant upon all of those demands you know i think that's the crucial point so we have to change the picture then we have to change the picture and we have to change the rules we have to change our judgments we have to change the rules you know and if if family that you've grown up in or relations have said this is this is the rule this is what constitutes good or bad if somebody says you can't do this you shouldn't do this well they may actually mean i wouldn't if somebody says this isn't right then it, it probably isn't right for them. Right. Yeah, so, so I'm not going to be the person who will say, you know, the way that you're raising your kids is good, the way that you're raising your kids is bad. All I know is this, that a good father is a person who's a good father to their children. I may be a terrible father to someone else's children, but I have children who have special needs. And if I can meet their needs on any given day, you know, if I hit two days out of seven in a week, I'm a good dad. I... I'm a good husband to carry. 
and I know that because if you want to tell if the husband's good to see how happy their wife is, you know, she's, she's happy. I may be terrible doing exactly the same thing and being exactly the same person to every other woman in the world, but that's fine. I'm only married to her. So actually, I would say to, to those of you who are autistic dads, to those of you who are SEN dads, it's, it's about you and your children. And if you have a partner, it's about you and your partner. It's not about anybody else. It's not about anybody else's judgment. It's not about anybody else's yardstick or measurements. It's not about whether you meet anybody else's criteria. It's you, your partner, your children, your unit. Absolutely, yes. And, and if part of that means that you recognize that you're struggling, that's okay. That's fine. We're all struggling. And if you recognize you're failing, that's okay. We all fail. Yeah. I think that if fathers reached out, if, if they actually all came out and communicated more, they'd support each other tremendously. I think, I think we'd all be having really good conversations. We'd be honest. It's just that barrier, that cultural barrier that stops us from coming out yeah. initially. You yeah. know, but if, if it wasn't, if that was removed, and I think, I think we'd be in a bit better position. I, t- I totally agree. We wouldn't be thinking hashtag perfect life. I don't. I don't live up to it. In fact, so much so, I have to say, I've I've redefined my idea of perfect. Seriously, for, because for me, perfect means that I'm hitting what's required in any moment of any day. If I miss it for 55 minutes of the hour and I hit it for five minutes, I've had a perfect five minutes. Perfect and flawless are now not the same thing. Because if perfect life means flawless, I'm never going to have a perfect life. But I can have perfect moments. You know, every now and again, there'll be a moment where you just get a smile and you know you've hit it. And I've had a perfect moment. Yeah, and it's really crucial to recognise that. I think this is mindfulness, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. You know, mindfulness is great. You know, being just in the moment, realising that you, you know, something. There's something beautiful there that that you know you may have missed that could hold real value and importance. So I know sometimes I have I have terrible days because I had a really bad five minutes days before. But actually, one of the one of the biggest things and the, the, the longest journeys and the hardest battles I fought is to give as much time and make as much of the great five minutes. Yeah. You know, if a terrible five minutes can impact me for days, a great five minutes should be able to do the same. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I'd also like to just add, if I may, the importance of community leaders. Because I think they, their voices really carry weight often, particularly in uh, sort of collectivist cultural groups. I'm, I'm thinking here about Jamaican com- community yeah. as well. You know, am I right in thinking that Jamaican culture is very much, it's quite a collectivist culture. It is about, you know, we, va- we sort of do place a lot of value upon what other people in, in one's culture is, are doing. Yeah. And that, I, I think, think right. creates I think even more stigma. Yeah, yeah. and I think oddly enough, I think, uh, it's only since I've, I moved into this area uh, the, where I live now and, you know, many years ago, I realised this heavy Greek area, um, Greek Cypriot, started going to school here and realised that there was exactly that same sort of thing of, you know, you don't let people know when you're failing. You don't let people know 
when things aren't going well. You, it's not that you mask, it's not even that you lie, it's just that you hold your tongue and you, because you have to keep up an appearance. And yes, it's the same in Jamaican culture, but I've realized it's the same, it's similar in many cultures that, that we mustn't be seen to be flawed. And that's where I think in many ways, one of the most liberating things for me is being able to say, this is me. You know, and if it doesn't work for you, that's all right. I'm not yeah. doing it for you. Yeah. I'm not living my life for you. I'm not raising my children for you. I think, I think a lot of credit to you, David, for recognising that. I think that people who are, are brought up in particular ways because of their cultural values that are associated often maybe with collectivist values. You know, this idea that you, sh- you should be sort of interdependent as opposed to independent you should value what other people are doing as opposed to what you want to do obviously i think you know these problems as we've discussed carry through throughout society generally but i think they're more poignant more problematic and powerful in certain types of communities and that is for the i think that given that there's no coincidence that you see often more stigma and less communication and more shame and all of that in certain cultural groups you know mm-hmm. a lot of the B- bme you know black and eth- minority ethnic mm-hmm. uh, groups really struggle with the stigma of uh, autism yeah, and mental right. health you know and i think it's partly because of this because of the the cultural again as we said earlier the sort of what we make up as in our what we construct in our cultures to be something that counts as valuable or not and in certain communities that point about about valuing what other people are thinking and doing and and sort of judging each other and watching each other and survey surveilling surveying each other really is particularly powerful and important in certain communities absolutely because you know you you kind of come from um, an unspoken understanding that the indigenous community think you're less so don't do anything to confirm their prejudice be as right as you can, be as good as you can. My mum used to say to me, actually, because she was a very independent thinking woman, she said, don't worry about what other people, don't wonder what other people think of you, they'll soon let you know. <laughs> don't waste your time <laughs> wondering what other people think That's of you. Old, yeah. But, you know, I think this reinforces the point that we know, we, we, I mean, I really want community leaders, people that, who, whose voice carries that it's okay to to be different essentially and and first and foremost love yourself value yourself first and foremost i think that 100%. that message could be carried 100%, by that's got to be carried love yourself and value yourself and you know what if, you, if you're not accepted by your community i know this may sound hard and i'm not trying to be glib and i'm not trying to be trite but you know what there are communities out there that will accept you there is a whole, certainly just speaking, not, not specifically of, of SCN in its broader sense, but autism specifically, there is an autism community that gets autism. And I'm sure that there's a Downs community that gets Downs. There is an SCN community that understands other people who are walking that same walk of SCN. So if your cultural community don't get you, then... yes community leaders need to work to make that happen but don't feel like you've just got to sit in isolation being misunderstood until that great and glorious day when people understand there are people out there who will understand i'm really encouraged sometimes when i read people on twitter um you know just just autism parents on twitter autism dads on twitter 
And I just think that's really encouraging. You know, sometimes I'll like their comments. Sometimes I'll just read and then go back and read again and then go back and read again. You think, I don't know this person, but I know this person gets me. I get them. Gives you hope. It gives me hope. You know, we're part of the same, the same way of thinking. We're part of the same philosophical outlook because we're walking the same walk. I may never meet some of these people, but I know they get me and I get them. That's very reassuring. You need to f- realize that you are not alone, Absolutely. you know, and uh, that is a, the reality. You are not alone. There really is, there really are other communities out there that would welcome you, arms open. So reach out and connect. Yeah. And listen, there are two voices on this podcast. Okay, there's Chris's voice and there's my voice. But those, our two voices are representative of countless voices, of tens of thousands of millions who are walking this same walk, who are trying to find a way through, who are being the best that they can be, who need encouragement to be the best that they can be. I would say if you know anybody... If you know any, you know, I'm talking about dads because I see the women tend to be better. The women that I see tend to be better at encouraging one another. But if you know any autism dads, if you know any SEN dads, just encourage them. Because quite often what you see on the surface belies what's going on beneath. Belies the concerns that they're not quite making it. They're not quite cutting it. They're not quite good enough. You know, just encourage them. We all need encouragement. And sometimes walking a mile with somebody with regard to, to just encouraging them could keep them going the next 99 miles. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely second that. And I think what you said about looks, what you see isn't what you get often. In fact, men are masterful at putting up a pretense and, and appearing that everything is fine. That is what they're often masterful at. And it really takes, if, if they look like they're struggling it means they are at probably at a crisis you know a complete crisis point if they're looking yes. like because yeah. that facade is gone they're, they're struggling so they, badly right they can't even right, they they can't even have the strength right. to hold the mask right. up anymore you know yeah. that they're in trouble yeah so so check in you know and and just ask and and be friendly and you know don't be afraid to ask difficult questions in fact i, I sort of wish people asked them more Absolutely. actually I'd rather somebody say, you know, don't ask me that or, um, you know, why are you asking? I'm not going to answer than to think they needed somebody to ask. They needed somebody to ask. In fact, I had a friend who used to say, walking the same walk, used to say when people said, how are you? He'd say, please don't ask me that unless you're prepared for the answer because you may be here for some time. (laughs) But I'm giving you permission to walk away now if you don't have the time for the answer. Because if you ask me, I'm going to tell you. Yeah. So if you ask, genuinely ask, because, you know, we don't necessarily, it could actually be worse if you ask, how are you doing? You know, you know, checking in with someone and then the person begins to sort of open up and then the other person closes off and walks away. Because that confirms your suspicions and actually, you know, people don't want to know. Yeah, so don't just, don't just ask, try to want to ask, you know, try to, try to actually want to know the yeah answer. try to care essentially you know yeah. um there's nothing wrong with that you know what is that going to add five more minutes to your day ten more minutes to the, your day who cares so what yeah. you know and uh, that that's going to help okay i'm i'm sort of thinking about time here 
Is there anything more you wanted to add or say? Do you know what? This has been really good. It's been really good to talk about this. I think the thing that I would say more than anything else is this, that, you know, all of us who are walking this walk are walking it blind. There's, there's no handbook. There's no route map. We all find our own way through. But you find your own way through knowing that actually that there is a way through. And knowing that you have within you, each of us has within us what we need to find a way through. That there are other people either in your life or if they're not in your life, they're there online who will share your walk if you feel like you're lost and you can't find your way through. But that actually, ultimately, I can say in all honesty, it's unbelievably stressful at times, but I personally can say that I have been, I have grown into somebody and am growing into somebody I would never be. I'm, I'm growing into a dad that I would never be. And I say growing because, you know, as, as my children change and they go through different phases of their lives, they require different things from me. I'm growing into a husband I would never be. I'm growing into a man I would never be. And that's speaking personally. And, you know, every growth has growing pains. And everything that's worth something costs something. And if you're out there and you're thinking, this is unbearable. Actually, you know what? Look at what you're achieving. Look at where you are and realise how strong you are. But also that in moments of weakness, it's fine. In moments of I can't cope, it's fine. In moments of... I don't know how I'm going to get through. It's fine. And the reason it's fine is because you stand with all of us who feel exactly the same way. We're not all feeling exactly the same way at the same time. That's why it's good to reach out. Because there'll be some people who go, I feel exactly like that. And there'll be others who'll say, I know how you feel. Whatever you do, don't stop. The only way to go through the storm is to keep going. Okay, I'll leave it on that note then. That's beautiful. Thank you very, very, very much, David, for your time and your wise words. And uh, thanks again. Thank you, Chris.